0: I wouldn't really start with Gladio. I mean, perhaps we should start with, uh, for example, the article that I have already summarized, which, okay, it's not talking about Gladio, but still, I think it's relevant to understand at least uh, what was happening in Italy at that time. Let me see. Okay, because we know uh, that, I mean, Italy is a pretty weird country. Uh, For those of you that are listening, uh, I am Italian, you can probably get it from my accent, so sorry for that anyway. Um, Italy is a weird country, meaning that a lot of weird things happened in Italy. It's a uh, border country, we may say, also because you know, we know after the Second World War, uh, some, a part, a relevant part of the Italian borders are with Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia itself is a particular type of uh, let's say, communist country, because, as I will say later, there is actually a divorce between Tito, so between Yugoslavia and Soviet Russia that happens more or less in 1948 and actually contributes a lot to the Italian scenario of which we are talking about. Now, we all know the canonical history about Italy. Italy had a strong resistance movement during the Second World War that mainly started as a consequence of the armistice. The armistice in Italy was signed the 8th September of 1943 and was a result of various events happening in Italy, mainly the fact that uh, in in July 25th, 1943, so a couple of months before, Mussolini had been basically arrested. That is, uh, the king uh, basically recognized that uh, Mussolini's government, I mean, we can call it government, it was a dictatorship, but okay, let's assume it is a government was failing. Failing because uh, in uh, July, in June, 1943, the Americans started to invade Sicily and South of Italy. So clearly Italy was in danger from this point of view. And also we know the effort on the um, ongoing for the second world war was not as planned by Mussolini. We had plenty of deaths no relevant military conquests. I mean, the only thing we were able to achieve was part of the South of France and part of Greece, but only with the aid of German troops. I mean, our army was not uh, the best in the world. Probably our Naval army was uh, definitely better than the land army let's say but still we encountered a lot of losses and all this stuff so Mussolini was basically um, sent to jail and forced to um, you know uh, how can I say Um, he he was forced to resign exactly after a votation happening in the grand council of fascism that was a sort of cabinet after all of uh, Uh, the entire fascist regime in Italy. So what happens after this context is that Badoglio, who is a a general in the army, becomes uh, uh, the prime minister. So he has a sort of government, again, still a government, that signs the armistice the 8th of September of 1943. This armistice basically divides Italy in two, that is, We have the south of Italy, which is more or less free in the sense that it is occupied by the Americans and it has been freed by the fascist presence. The king himself will move to Brindisi, which is a city in south of Italy, in Puglia, to be more precise, in the region of Puglia. Uh, While the north remains in the ends, not only of fascist in general, but also of Mussolini, because after Mussolini is in prison on the Gran Sasso, which is a mountain in the center of Italy, he is then freed by a sort of military um, military assault team of SS. Uh, Otto Skorzeny, if I am not I am not sure about how to pronounce this surname, anyway, but Otto Skorzeny was one of the main figures involved. He was a sort of hero among the SS because of his extreme bravery. Um, Mussolini is basically appointed as leader of the so-called Italian Social Republic, uh, which is basically a, a Nazi fascist state, basically that exists in the North of Italy with the support of Italy. So the resistance is mainly active in the center and North part of Italy, because this is where the real fighting is. Also, because the Americans that are able to gradually move up in Italy, get stuck at a point, which is the so-called linea Gotica, so the gothic line, basically a border between free Italy and the, uh, and the RSI, so the Repubblica Sociale Italiana, so the state led by Mussolini, And this line is extremely difficult to cross. And this is where the main fightings happen. And this, uh, uh, let's say, uh, horizontal border, horizontal line divided Italy into is also the point that best represents uh, the partisan resistance. Uh, I live close, very close to where the Gothic line was so clearly, I feel a particular, also emotional attachment to uh, this topic. I mean, consider that, uh, the I live in a street which is dedicated to a partisan. He died in um, at the end of 1944, so a couple of a couple uh, some months before the end of the conflict. And he was more or less my age because I mean, I'm approaching 23, he was like 23 or 24. So, I mean, it's something um, tough if you think about it. So Uh, What we said is that, okay, the resistance emerges. The resistance comes from uh, the population most of the time, the basic population. Of course, we have members of the army, sometimes those that, for example, uh, resist to being, uh, um, let's say, uh, drafted by the regular RSI army. Some refuse to contribute. Some become deserters, of course, but also members of the civil population actually decide to uh, emerge. Also consider that most of them were doing a political activity during the fascist regime. This uh, political activity was clearly done in a clandestine way, in an illegal way. They were socialist. They were uh, uh, Catholics sometimes, and most of the times, this is the interesting part, they were actually communists. So we don't have to forget that even though a lot of different forces actually contributed to the resistance movement, the vast majority, I would say uh, uh, surely above 50%, but probably up to 60% was made by Italian communists. Women and men, of course, this is also another important piece of information. Now, the events, uh, as we know, go as follows. By the 25th of April of 1945, Italy is definitely freed. Generally, uh, this date, which in Italy is known as the liberation date, coincides, if I remember correctly, with the day in which Milan is freed, also because Milan is uh, the most important city in North Italy, and it's also one um, of the cities much closer to the northern borders of Italy. The idea is that, basically, once you have freed it, uh, the rest of Italy, you, re- you give it for free, basically. Uh, I mean, it's done. Um, so, uh, Italy is freed, and uh, a government needs to be created. We know in a, by going from 1945 to 1948, a lot of things happen. We decide to transform the kingdom of Italy because Italy was still a kingdom even under the fascist regime. We decided to transform it in a republic. We do a referendum, and, and so, re, republic against monarchy, and the republic wins 60 uh, 40 more or less. What is important to say about this referendum are two things one that is uh, evident, crystal clear, the other one that is a rumor. So, I mean, I don't know how reliable that is, but I mean, we can say it just for the sake of having fun. The first evident thing is that if you look at the distribution of votes in regional terms, you see that um, generally those that are in the North are more favorable of the Republic for obvious reasons, because they were the ones more involved, let's say to some extent in the partisan resistance If you look at the votes received by the monarchy, they are stronger in the South. In some regions in the South, you also see that the monarchy in terms of preferences is above 50%. Of course, this is different and needs to be clarified about saying that, uh, oh, southerners supported the monarchy and all of that. The, The story is much more complicated. We should consider that even though the South was mainly freed by the Americans, there were spontaneous resistance movements, for example, happening in specific cities. The cities of Naples, which is the, the biggest city in South Italy, was freed by its uh, citizens who acted exactly as uh, partisans did in the north. So um, they were uh, some of them communists, socialists, etc., etc. And they freed against uh, uh, the fascists. So it needs to be clarified that also resistance existed in the South. The war perhaps contributed to divide the political Italy a little bit, still because you see that after the war, the neo-fascist party, the MSI, the Italian Social Movement or Movimento Social Italiano, if we say it in Italian, gained the majority of its votes in the South. But uh, okay, that's the end of the story. The second thing about the referendum is that uh, someone claims, I don't know with what evidence, uh, that actually uh, the votation was, uh, there have been frauds ongoing. So someone uh, made these frauds in order for the Republic to prevail.
1: So it was rigged. Basically, there's a claim that the election was rigged.
0: Yeah, exactly. There is this claim, again, I would say it's a rumor uh, also because I don't know which type of evidence you can actually find about it. But anyway, Uh, what we see is exactly that uh, some some claim that, you know, someone made the Republic win. Of course, if this rumor comes from neo-monarchists, it's complete bullshit, obviously. It's complete BS. Uh, But again, I don't know. It's just a rumor, something that uh, when you study Uh, you know, history in high school, someone always uh, points this out, you know, the professor perhaps says, "Ah, you know, someone had said that probably the the election was rigged, the referendum was rigged, but anyway, doesn't really matter. The republic wins. The next important step is, uh, well, the approval of our constitution that, I mean, it's important for Italians, Uh, we are sometimes uh, Overindulgent, let's say, or too much um, showing an, um, let's say, an emotional contact a relationship with this constitution because sometimes we claim it's the best constitution in the world. Which I mean, um, I don't really know because also in the constitution, clearly, if you read it, you see that it has been the. Um, Let's say a compromise, of course, because our constitutional assembly was mainly formed by those who won the resistance. I think that also some minority seats uh, were given also to, not fascists, of course, but perhaps to some monarchists, perhaps, but just, I mean, minority seats, just for, you know, let them show up. Uh, also, because anyway, yeah, it should be said that among the resistance uh, there were some monarchist members that saw Mussolini as a traitor, as someone who had uh, basically put dirt on the monarchy. For them, the monarchy was something noble. Wait a second, because Arturo wants to get out. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. Arturo, dove vai? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, he he wants to eat. So, uh, as I was saying, instead of the Constitutional Assembly, clearly there are some equilibrias that need to be respected. Uh, These equilibria are defined uh, basically on uh, what happened during the war. Because, of course, uh, so far, uh, there have been no elections in Italy, if I remember correctly. The first elections that are done in Italy after the referendum are the administrative ones at which, in which the communist and the socialist party gain a lot of votes, which is why they will ally in 1948 for the political elections. So uh, anyway, just to quote a brief episode about the constitution, our constitution states in article one that uh, Italy is a Republic funded on founded, sorry, not founded, founded on the concept of labor, founded on labor. This was a compromise because actually communists wanted the constitution to say a republic founded on workers, which is, I mean, a little bit different. The, the difference is subtle, but clearly everyone can get it. Using saying that it's founded on labor is something a little bit generic. I mean, it's clearly the result of a compromise. So what happens in Italy, of course, is that elections are approaching in 1948. And as we said, the the Italian communist and the socialist one decide to form together a popular front. They choose uh, to use as a symbol in this popular front the face of Giuseppe Garibaldi. Giuseppe Garibaldi is uh, an hero of our uh, I don't know how to say it in English. Uh, we the call unification, it a
1: right? The unification of Italy. Yeah,
0: exactly. Which is the uh-huh. period in which Italy is basically unified. So, 1861. Garibaldi, even though perhaps is a little bit controversial, as all the big characters in history, was seen as um, was very appreciated by Italian communists and socialists because he was seen as a revolution as a revolutionary, because he helped. Um, to carry out the the anti-colonial struggle in in South America. Uh, If I remember correctly, his wife came from South America, Anita Garibaldi. Uh, I think that uh, uh, even though the name sounds Italian, he was South American, but anyway, he was called the hero of the two worlds, exactly because he was a hero in South America and he was a hero in Italy. He also acted a little bit against uh, uh, the king, anyway, eh? during the unification process, which is why at a certain point uh, he got shot in a le- in uh, one of his legs, and he actually recovered in my city. So he was sent to recover in a military hospital in my city, La Spezia. So relevant. They choose this symbol, but dramatically they lose the elections. They lose because they gain around twenty percent. Democristian party, so the party representing the unity of all Catholics in Italy gains uh, the absolute majority. I think that uh, 51, like 52. Nevertheless, uh, this um, the Christian Democratic Party, which is called Democrazia Cristiana, Christian Democracy in Italian in, in English, in translated in English, decides to rule, so to make a government, a parliamentary government with other small parties, with other small centrist parties that are more or less around, uh, again, this Democrazia Cristiana. Uh, Basically, this choice is quite tactical in the sense that uh, in the light of a new Republic that is emerging in Italy, Democrazia Cristiana decides that uh, it wouldn't be a good image to rule alone. The idea is simply to, okay, we enlarge the majority, we allow other parties to come in and support us. So we give, let's say, um, the image of the fact that as parties we are anyway dividing the power in some way, So we are not ending up in a situation, I mean, the, the democrazia cristiana does not want people to believe uh, that it is becoming the new fascist party, the new hegemonic party. Also because this was something believed uh, by other parties, because uh, in Italy, we have to say, since there was no Norimberga in Italy, uh, and mo- most of the fascists were free to act. Some of them even reconstituted a party. For example, we said the MSI, what is even more uh, interesting to say is the history of a weird Italian party called the fro- uh, called Fronte dell'uomo qualunque which means front of the common man which is why in Italy sometimes when we say we want to talk about populism we talk about qualunquismo which is something like uh, common manism Because this Fronte dell'uomo qualunque was a party founded by a journalist with some fascist sympathies anyway, that said that uh, once, okay, the fascist regime has been abolished by be afraid Italians because now the new dictatorship will be made by parties. So Fronte dell'uomo qualunque proposed itself as a party against the other parties. We are a movement, Uh, we are a front, And and also, they were uh, a a movement, actually. Uh, They were a movement, which is, I mean, uh, one may say, what is the difference between being a movement and a party? Well, you can ask two, five stars. Five stars nowadays, when they propose themselves, they exactly said more or less the same thing. We are not a party. That is, we are not institutional. It sounds like we are a movement. We come from uh, um, the low ground, let's say. We come from the common people. This fronte dell'uomo qualunque is de facto considered by many a neo-fascist party. basically. So um, a party that basically wants to take power and then saying, ah, you know, we will just be, um, I don't know uh, how, common employees in the state because we don't want people to be afraid about the dictatorship of parties. They also sort of carry out the idea that states can be lead with neutrality. They use the word uh, ragioniere. Ragioniere in Italian is generally an employee with some legal and economic studies. Uh, The idea is that if you are a ragioniere inside the state, you act in a technical way, sort of. I mean, it was a weird party and uh, uh, it uh, basically collapsed after the elections. What is relevant to say is that one of the followers of this party, Antonio Pallante, who is still alive nowadays, in 1948, tried to shoot Togliatti. uh, So after the elections, which were lost, uh, yes, I think it was after the elections, if I remember correctly, uh, shoot Togliatti. Yes, it was definitely after the elections, I think. Shoot, Togliatti, uh, it was not something terribly serious. Uh, Togliatti was able to survive and he lived until 1964. So he was able to still live uh, 16 years after this uh, event. Now, going back to our story, so the main story is, okay, but what happens in Italy at that time? Why, between uh, 1945 and 1948, we don't see, a revolution happened in Italy, an insurrection, because the partisans may have had the power to do so. Clearly, Italian partisans had weapons. Weapons that were taken from the fascist army that were gradually, let's say, conquered and captured, clearly, but also armies that were given by the allies by the Americans or by the English, uh, by the British people. In particular, a weapon that was really appreciated by the Italian partisans was the Sten. I think it's called. I think it was like a sort of uh, um, a chain gun, uh, you know, mitraille uh, chain gun. Yes, something like that. It's, it it was automatic. I think this was made the difference. So it was relatively easy to use, and uh, it was very appreciated. Of course once the war is finished uh, authorities start to say yeah okay partisans but you are not regular soldiers after all but the war is ended you should give us back the weapons of course this uh, did not happen we have evidence that only a small fraction of weapons was uh, given back to its let's say legitimate owners the vast majority of it disappeared in italy and uh, uh, the communists themselves had an interest in hiding these arms, these weapons. In Italy, we have the story that when the communists started to build their, uh, um, let's say, uh, we, we call them sezioni, so sections around Italy, in every village, there was a section of the communist party. So a small house representing the communist party, uh, inside um, the the weapons were buried in the walls of the of these houses. So, you know, in case of war, in case of insurrection, you can take the weapons and you destroy the walls, so you have the weapons. And uh, this and was what, clearly,
1: yeah? What was the, you taught me the word for that. Uh, I remember you told me yeah, the Italian the word, word for The word, the
0: verb meaning uh, tear down the walls is uh, smurare which is the opposite of murare, because when you murare something, it means that you are putting something behind the wall. For example, a locker, no? Um, a, A cavo, cavo murare in the wall. Of course, smurare, so putting an S in front of the verb, means doing the opposite. So taking something out of the wall. So destroying the wall and taking it back. And this is what was done with weapons as an example. Now, of course, this uh, this event actually never happened. We know that in Italy there has never been an insurrection, but anyway, there was the fear that something like that may have happened. In particular, this uh, uh, fear uh, was mainly coming, of course, from the, let's say the Italian secret services and also by some different American reports that were written on the state of events in Italy. Because clearly there was uh, the uh, fear that such an event could happen. Because again, partisans, of, at the end of the day, they were parts of the civil population, but during the war, they all received some form of training. They know how to deal with a weapon. They had some guerrilla tactics a little bit. So. Perhaps they are not exactly like soldiers, but they are very similar to this condition. So they can create problems if they want, which is what happened, for example, in Milan after the war. Uh, some partisans continued to act, the so called Volante Rossa which I don't know how to translate uh, in the sense that Rosa is red, but Volante generally is how we call nowadays the car of the police. Volante Rosa basically means red team that uh, you know, roams around the city. And if something is not good, they, they do something in a
1: sort sense. Of, So sort of like vigilantes, I guess.
0: Yeah, uh, yes, exactly, wow. they were sort of vigilante. And uh, other things also happened. I mean, this is a bit more uh, a conspiracy, and this is an episode generally referred by all the neo-fascists who really hate the partisans. But what happened in Emilia, perhaps it's relevant, so that during the last months of the war and after the end of the war, in Emilia, which is Emilia-Romagna is a region of center north Italy. And it was indeed a red region. So a region in which communists at the regional level always have the power. I mean, so so far, uh, the president of uh, of the Emilia-Romagna region is expression of the, let's say, center left party, the Italian Democratic Party, let's say. So the, the, the region never had a right-wing president. Now in this, uh, uh, in particularly in Emilia, which is uh, the part of this region that is nearer to the mountains, Romania is the one on the shores, uh, communist partisans were extremely active. And uh, you can identify the so-called red triangle. So this portion of Emilia, in which uh, still after the war, Partisans used to, you know, carry out their own justice by sometimes killing people that probably had relationships with the fascist regime. For example, they were collaborators, they were spies for the fascist party, also at a really um, basic level so also i mean informants uh, uh, of the standard population sometimes for example what happened is that in some context priests were killed because uh, they were informants for uh, fascists sometimes this happened but anyway apart from inspecting this which i mean it's something uh, too controversial let's focus again on what happens in italy now what happens in Italy is uh, the fact that at a certain point, uh, um, this insurrection basically, as we know, is never done for a variety of reasons. First of all, we we already said something about the figure of Togliatti. Now, according to someone, uh, basically Togliatti is a sort of mythological figure who is, uh, let's say, always a, um, uh, how can I say, moderate, between uh, the Italian communist and the Soviet communist. Although this is not completely true, but the, the Vulgata, the Vox Populi around Togliatti was that he was a man of compromise. So he has always been able to keep things quiet. Although this is again, not uh, extremely true because Togliatti anyway had political intelligence That's the point. It's not that he was a moderate. He had political intelligence. He knew when things could be made and when they couldn't. Inside the Communist Party, there is a double component. The one represented by Togliatti, that uh, perhaps it's a little bit more moderate, let's say in this sense. And then we have the revolutionary part represented by Secchia. Secchia is for uh, uh, revolution immediately. Secchia already imagines that if we do an insurrection in Italy the northern part of Italy will fall under the control of workers because of course uh, industries factories are in the north of Italy so north of Italy is full of workers perhaps in the center there can be some allocation some fights the south clearly will remain uh, in the ends of uh, uh, the legit, the so called the existent state at the time, or of the allies, also because Secchia basically says that he does not believe that a vast majority of the population in South Italy will actually support this insurrection. But these are all speculations at the end of the day because nothing of this applies. Now, what is the position of Stalin? Well, Stalin is a little bit ambiguous on this in the sense that he wants to be the one dictating, clearly. Whatever happens in Italy must come from his orders. Togliatti and Secchia do not have the power to act independently on Stalin. Clearly, after the Second World War, uh, the equilibria is that Eastern Europe is Uh, directly under the control of the Soviet Union, but all the communist parties that arise in Western Europe must follow as well the orders of Stalin. So this this is already part of the problem to some sense. These parties, for example, the Communist Party are important definitely in Italy. Uh, The Italian Communist Party was the most important Communist Party in Western Europe. And I would say in the Western world in general, but nevertheless, it was never able to achieve power. So the problem was, how do we put these parties into uh, power? Now, before the elections already, uh, the uh, the idea was that, uh, okay, Stalin gives the orders. Now, the orders of Stalin are to see what happens, in the sense that we have to respect the Yalta agreement. So we have to respect uh, this division of the world. Now, the pivotal pivotal events here are two, the Greek civil war and uh, the relationship with Yugoslavia. In Greece, uh, the situation was definitely more advanced than in Italy from this point of view, because uh, the communist party of Greece was extremely more belligerent. And at a certain point, they effectively decide to start a war against the, the installed government. Now, also here the common historiography uh, on the topic tells us that uh, Soviet the Soviet Union never intervened in the conflict, which is not true, because for uh, uh, Stalin it was uh, a sort of experiment, to some extent, no, and. Uh, In order to make a difference, you have to participate in the experiment. So uh, we have actually private writings, for example, between Molotov and Stalin, in which Molotov, which was uh, the foreign minister at the time, reports that uh, the Greek communists are asking for specific kind of weapons. And the Soviet Union is delivering these weapons to the Greek communists. And Stalin is happy of this. Uh, What is the problem, of course, is that this war, for a variety of reasons, is lost by the Greek communists. At a certain point, for the Soviet Union, it becomes evident that the Greek communists are going to lose. Also because the communist um, party in Greece was divided between two fronts, which uh, each of them had had, had a leader, one was extremely belligerent, so in favor of continuing the war, the other one was a little bit more skeptical. Anyway, what happens is that the Soviet Union at a certain point decides to to give up, basically. The civil war is lost in Greece. So uh, we have to simply uh, acknowledge the obvious, And this is where the divorce with Yugoslavia comes because Yugoslavia on the other side, we know that the leader in Yugoslavia is Marshal Tito. Uh, Tito is actually in favor of continuing this war. Uh, Tito is very movementarian, no? Uh, So he's for conflict, he's for change. He thinks that the war can be still won to some extent. And also he is so belligerent that he actually plans weird invasions of Austria that was in the Western world at that time. Clearly Stalin does not accept that Tito is taking the initiative, first of all, and also he does not accept that uh, Tito has the interest to start a series of conflicts that for Stalin are completely uh, out of reality. So the divorce exactly happens Uh, in this situation. What is the problem for Italy of this uh, situation? The probability of an insurrection further decreases because now as a consequence of the divorce between Stalin and Tito, also the Italian communist party divorces from Tito. Clearly that's obvious, Togliatti uh, follows the orders of Stalin. I mean, it's no wonder that Stalin along with Molotov and a few others was, the, was again among the only ones to survive the period of the purges, of the Stalinian purges, because uh, they were clever enough to follow Stalin orders when it was necessary or sort of advising him to change them. I mean, uh, Togliatti was uh, a very important element of the coming form, perhaps the most important, the most non-Soviet one. Non-Soviet, I mean the fact that he was uh, of Italian nationality, even though, as we know, Togliatti actually received the Soviet citizenship at a certain point in his life, but nevertheless. uh, So there is this divorce with Yugoslavia, which means that again, in case of insurrection in Italy, Yugoslavia cannot provide any help because of course, uh, uh, we know that synergies uh, between Italian communists and Yugoslavian communists were existing clearly. Of course in case of an insurrection in Italy Yugoslavia would have tried to invade uh, clearly northern Italy so clearly this uh, is an additional problem also the failure of the Greek civil war is a proof that for Stalin there is not a lot of th- there are not a lot of things to do in, in the Mediterranean area uh, there is actually nothing to do the only thing we can do is uh, uh, war but with uh, propaganda So we fuel from uh, the Soviet Union these communist parties with money and we hope that one day they are able to gain power through the elections. And actually, as we know, uh, Stalin's attention moves to the north of Europe because for for Stalin, again, the Mediterranean area is stuck in a series of equilibria that cannot be altered. Something can be done, uh, for example, in North Europe. Uh, that is uh, around Berlin, which is why then uh, we have all the events, you know, Berlin-Ovest, West Berlin, East Berlin, etc. Of course, in Italy, after the failure, because it is actually a failure of the uh, popular front in the general elections of 1948, uh, it is decided that at this point uh, the the insurrection is, uh, I mean, completely impossible. There is no other uh, uh, practical way apart from uh, waiting and see. So this is a Stalin policy in Italy. Because again, Stalin now is more concerned about what is happening in Northern Europe, so in Germany, and also what is happening in Far East, because these are also the years of the Chinese revolution. Uh, We know that, uh, I mean, uh, by having a more long-term perspective, relationship between the Soviet Union and the Popular Republic of China could have been better we know that there were points in which uh, there was a lot of arguing between the two components. And so, okay, I I would say that's more or less everything I had to say on this part.
1: Yeah, well, I think the next thing to talk about is this provides all of the historical context for what happens in Italy before the years of lead, but can you go into briefly like how Gladio gets set up by NATO? What is the process that they start going about to connect with okay. people who are going to be part of Gladio? Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, I mean, I, I say something uh, just to summarize it a little bit. Okay, as we know, Gladio is a so-called stay-behind operation, meaning that it is an organization which, however, does not exist from a legal point of view. Uh, We know the main vulnus when talking about Gladio is that we are talking of a paramilitary association with uh, lots of volunteers in Italy that were spread in every position in society, but uh, such uh, an organization was not uh, under the control of the parliament. Only a few people in very leadership positions, so, uh, apex members of the government and of the army knew of this operation now in italy this operation translates into this gladio organization Uh, in italy gladio means a precise thing Uh, in in, in ancient times generally during the roman period the gladio was a short sword that was used by uh, Roman fighters by, uh, yes, by Latin fighters. So also by gladiatori. Gladiatori, which were the ones fighting in the Colosseum, uh, were sometimes using this gladio to fight between us, to fight between them. Now, the thing here one may notice is that you already see that already in the logo of gladio, there is a reactionary component. I mean, if you recall yourself to the Roman Empire, this this, this is what fascism used to do. The symbol of fascism, which is fascio, it's exactly something that comes from the Roman Empire. The fascio, was uh, it was not really a weapon. It was an axe um, um, uh, wrapped with uh, pieces of wood, with sticks of wood, that was used by magistrates, by judges, to show their power. So it was a, a, an element very common in the Roman iconography and it was simply reused later by fascism. And also Mussolini when making the new Italian empire by conquering some colonies in Africa. So uh, the corner, the East corner of Africa and where Libya has already had already been conquered before fascism was saying that uh, we are remaking the Roman empire. Basically. So already Gladio, let's say he's sort of recalling this uh, past. So you may say that he's reactionary already for the starting point. Already, uh, even though, as Kosiga noted, the the symbol, the international symbol of all these uh, stay-behind operations that were created in Europe was actually a hole, not a gladio. Gladio was only the Italian version, let's say. Um, I don't know the symbol in other countries, but the overall uh, international symbol was the symbol of the whole which uh, i mean to me recalls uh, an intelligence operation no? because the whole also in the words of hegel what is the role of the whole the whole comes at the end of the period and applies the philosophy of history so he's able to uh, sort of uh, uh, make synthesis of a period that has already already been closed not to la di minerva we say in italian so the whole of uh, uh, Minerva, which is the, the, the Greek goddess of intelligence, basically, okay, again, so again, notion of intelligence for the old. Now, uh, what is uh, definitely relevant to say about Gladio is that, um, sorry, Gladio, because it's Italian, so we pronounce it in Italian, Gladio, we may say that emerges, I mean, its necessity is multiple. If we believe that Gladio is a stay-behind operation that has mainly a defense purpose, we can say that it emerges because uh, it was well known, we have already said about this, that uh, after the Second World War, the Italian Communist Party was maintaining a paramilitary organization made by the partisans that participated in the conflict and of which most of them were uh, actually in favor to restart a new one. So a new call to the arms. Uh, Now, there are are a lot of reports of intelligent reports that try to estimate the parameter organization of the Italian communist party. So we can be more or less frightened by the numbers uh, depending uh, if they are, you know, Three hundred thousand and all of this stuff, but at the end of the day, one may say, well, okay, Gladio emerged um, exactly to as a, a counter as a counter defense from a potential communist uh, insurrection that, again, we know never happened. But again, the vulnus of this organization, the vulnus, uh, in discussing about Gladio, Gladio, and this is a problem that in Italy emerged only in 1990, so at the end of the, uh, of the Cold War, was that this organization was out of the control of the parliament. Uh, in Italy, as in every parliamentary republic, uh, the, the main job in uh, You know, organizing a state is done by the parliament and the government. The problem of Gladio is that only, again, some figures knew of its existence. For example, Cossiga, that we said is a longa manus, sort of, so a a figure that uh, knew probably a lot of things uh, about what happened exactly in Italy during these years, was informed of of Gladio, only in 1966, probably, again, probably, certainly this organization existed before. And in the words of Cossiga, the negotiations, the agreement behind this organization were carried out by Moro mainly, and other members of the Democristian christian party. Remember, for those who don't know, that Aldo Moro was one of the figures, of the main important figures of the uh, Democristian christian party. And then he was assassinated in 1978 by the Red Brigades. But that's another story, I would say. He was killed for another reason, not for so because I mean, it was unknown. Still, according to Cossiga, uh, the um, managerial aspect of Gladio, because again, Gladio required managerial effort, because it is, a, it is stay behind, so it is a secret. Not everyone can know of it, but still, gladio wanted ears in every part of society. This means that we have to find people that are, you know, loyal to the cause, volunteers, basically, to some extent. So people that are uh, belong to every part of society, uh, according still to the reconstruction made by Cossiga, and I underline reconstruction made by Cossiga because again one may actually doubt this source to be reliable, the managerial aspects um, of Gladio would have been managed, so let's say, uh, made by Enrico Mattei. Enrico Mattei is another important historical figures. Uh, hundreds of books have been written on him. Here we just say the basics about him. Enrico Mattei is a partisan. is actually a sort of uh, partisan officer to some extent. And during the Italian resistance, he proves that he definitely has some managerial skills, real managerial skills, not uh, CEO skills. Here we are talking of real organizations
1: here. Not like you would learn at a a business school.
0: Yeah, Uh, Enrico Mattei was not a business school man, I think. (laughs) He was a clever man. Uh, Uh Some may not appreciate what he did and others will, uh, but still uh, he was intelligent on this point of view. Enrico Mattei um, so was one of the most important members of the Italian resistance in which of course he represented not the communist but uh, the Christian party so the Democrazia Cristiana once uh, um, we turn into a republic he becomes president of any Ente Nazionale Idrocarburi, so, uh, which is the, the national agency of fossil fuels. Eni uh, was uh, basically a state-owned enterprise, already existing before um, uh, before the Italian Republic. If I remember correctly, uh, it was probably created in Italy under fascism. Yes. And uh, uh, even more probably during the years of the Great Depression, probably, because it was a period in which, you know, since the industrial sector in Italy was declining as an effect of the Great Depression, the fascist regime nationalized a lot of enterprises. And I think that also um, any may have emerged in that period, but okay, I mean, perhaps cut this part. I mean, uh, if, I'm, if I'm wrong, I'll tell you later if I'm wrong. So, Enrico Mattei becomes president of any, and uh, the, the life of Enrico Mattei actually ends abruptly because he's killed in a plane accident. So the plane, the private jet, I think- Killed in,
1: in a close. plane accident in, in quotation yeah, marks.
0: plane accident. Now here probably, I mean, I'm, I'm not extremely an expert of his life, so my speculations are very basic, but, you know, the common uh, things that are said on the topic is that he was able with, uh, again, some maneuvers, to move war against the uh, seven sisters. Yes, I I think they are seven. Basically, the seven sisters were the seven main fossil fuel producers in the world. Moving war to this uh, cartel, basically, meant a lot, particularly not only in economic terms, but also in geopolitical terms. Because also remember that uh, Italy as the central country of the Mediterranean also had powerful relationships with Middle East countries and also North African countries. So here a lot of interests overlap. It's also very difficult from a geopolitical point of view to discuss all of them. It's very complex anyway someone says that Enrico Mattei was taken out of the picture exactly because, uh, uh, again, he moved the war to the Seven Sisters. Now, how do we know of Gladio? Well, uh, uh, we cannot really say that someone discovered Gladio because actually it was something uh, that declaration of existence of Gladio was made by those who knew the existence of Gladio. In particular, I'm talking about Andreotti. Who is Andreotti? Well, Andreotti is another leader because uh, this party had many leaders, also con- in, um, contemporarily, uh, of the Democristian party. Again, Andreotti represents the right wing of the Demo-Christian Party. The Demo-Christian Party, we can say it is a truly centrist party, because the idea when making it after the Second World War was, we want a party that speaks with the Vatican, first of all, because it represents the unity of all uh, Catholic citizens in Italy. And of course, you can imagine how much power had Catholicism in Italy. I mean, the Pope is in Rome, not in Paris. So. Clearly this played a role. In this big picture, Andreotti, who was many times uh, Ministry uh, of Defense, uh, also of Internal Affairs, I think, and also of uh, Foreign, yes. Uh, He was also, again, Prime Minister. He was uh, very close to become President of the Republic, but uh, things were changing too much. At the time, because of you know the end of the Cold War, of the Cold War, and Cossiga was preferred to him actually. Uh, and then another point is uh, uh, the fact that uh, again Andreotti is considered in Italy an extremely, I mean, intellectual, clever politician with a lot of dark sides. He was involved in a lot of stuff, and since uh, he died. Um, around ten years ago, more or less. Uh, well, probably. Um, I mean, most of his secrets are buried with him. In uh, 1990, during uh, a declaration in uh, um, at the Chamber of Representatives, uh, Andreotti was at the time prime minister, if I remember correctly. Um, declares the existence of Gladio for a very simple reason, not because he has been forced to, partially there were some investigation, but st- still uh, these investigations uh, could have been simply stopped by not allowing them to see the archives because clearly the archives of Gladio, of Gladio were off limits for everyone. Nevertheless, Andreotti understands that there is no point anymore in keeping the existence of Gladio secret for a very simple reason, because its purpose has ended. The Cold War has stopped. Soviet Russia does not exist anymore. The the probability of a communist insurrection was already terribly low um, after 1948, for what we said, basically, but still there were uh, problems. You wanted even to avoid The regular Communist Party to take power democratically. So, clearly, what happened in the elections of 1976, where the Communist Party gained a third of the votes, uh, was uh, a frightening signal for uh, the geopolitical uh, equilibria in Italy. So, Andreotti reveals, uh, frankly, that this, uh, uh, I say, um, institution where this uh, state behind operation exists. And now it's basically time to dismantle it again, because its historical uh, purpose has ended. There is no further reason in still practicing it. Now, uh, at the time, again, investigations are carried out by some Italian judges and Andreotti basically allows them to use the archives of Gladio. Again, uh, of Gladio. again. there is no point in keeping this a secret. So uh, we can speak of it frankly now. Um, this was a sign among many others, and this is something also interesting to discuss, of how the political system was basically collapsing. Andreotti basically declared it because uh, he understood that Gladio was one of the main things we had to get rid of meaning that the system was declining, uh, the horizon for Italy was dramatic under every point of view, in the sense that, uh, again, the Cold War ended. So, I mean, the Cold War in Italy coincided with a phase of uh, you know prosperity to some extent, also because, I mean, also, the Democ also, also the Democratic Party, I mean they received clearly a lot of money by the Americans. So there is no doubt about it. Most of their illegal funds coming from come from the U.S. Also, because the Demo-Christian Party was the main reference for uh, uh, the U.S. allies, so for the allies. But also, again, Andreotti understood that uh, everything would have changed in a couple of years. Uh, for example, the Communist Party, so a long. Uh, uh, the long existing rival was uh, was not existing anymore. I mean, in, in, uh, if I remember correctly, the the step with which we moved from the Italian Communist Party to the Democratic Party of the Left, Partito Democratico della Sinistra, PDS, was exactly in 1991. So after a little bit the fall of the Soviet Union, if I remember correctly. But uh, the point here is that Andreotti saw that things were declining. Also with Manipulite, so the so a season um, started, starting in 1992 of political processes against the past political leaders and anyway members of the so-called managerial and ruling class in Italy, it was clear that the political system that existed and flourished in Italy in the last 50 years was declining. So it was time to get rid of the dirt under the carpet. Basically, I think that this is what uh, uh, Andreotti understood at a certain point. Anyway, weird things would have continued to happen anyway because still the interactions, for example, with mafia were still relevant. Consider, for example, what happened between ninety-two and ninety-three in uh, sorry, nineteen ninety-two and nineteen ninety-three in Sicily, where two very well-known judges, Falcone and Borsellino, were killed. By, uh, by mafia men in explosions, so uh, terrible explosions. Um, so still in Italy, there was still an ongoing uh, shock on this phase. And again, when you sum up to this, the political earthquake that was happening at the time, you see that Italy was moving, which is why we say that uh, we were moving from the First Republic to the Second Republic. Although there was no relevant constitutional change, because this is generally how you name republics. In France, we are now at the Fifth Republic, I think, but because there have been changes in the constitution. In Italy, this is more a journalistic uh, political definition instead of a legal one, because you can see clearly that in Italy, between 1989 and 1994, all the main characters, and I mean parties, in the political parliament changed dramatically. Again, the Italian Communist Party became uh, the Democratic Party of the left. So um, with an ambiguous identity, they were not anymore communists, they were not socialists in the Italian sense of the term, which was a negative sense, they were not social democrats. Weird things, the Socialist Party that basically ruled in Italy, I mean, ruled, uh, particularly its leader, Craxi was prime minister many times during the eighties, collapsed because all of its most important figures were basically found to have practiced, you know, illegal funding and all of this stuff. Craxi himself actually escaped from Italy. He lived as an exile in Amamet, which is in Tunisia, I think until the end of his days. He never came back to Italy. As soon as he knew that investigations were starting on him, he decided to leave Italy, also because to leave Italy. Also, he was afraid of jail, uh, also because probably, well, he didn't want to spend his last days in jail, as probably uh, most of us, I mean, who does want to go to jail? And also because at the time uh, in jail, some of uh, the main um, figures, let's say that were accused, by the judges at the time actually committed suicide. Here probably there is no conspiracy behind. Simply these people understood that this was the end of their lives. And probably the, the conditions that they experienced in jail were so tough that uh, at a certain point they decided to took their life, basically, so to kill themselves. Craxi didn't want to make a similar end. Also because uh, he was also, mm, I think that he already suffered at the time of diabetes, and this is how he died. Actually, he died of diabetes. Uh, of diabetes, then. Anyway, again, we see that in five years parties collapse. The Christian Democratic Party splits into different of its souls. Uh, the Christian Democratic Party, as I said, had many had many uh, souls inside. The one, the centrist one, the more right wing one the more left wing represented by Moro and Demita. But anyway, they stayed together uh, through, you know, all the typical politics make of compromise balances and counterbalances. I mean, if you think about it in perspective, keeping together such a party, such different souls for 50 years uh, was probably a political masterpiece, which is why as uh, the First Republic starts to fall, the Christian Democratic Party force splits immediately. Uh, There are, immediately, well, uh, it's an ongoing process, but still uh, it's consensus among the population was eroded dramatically. Because in the North, Liga Nord was emerging. So the party that we now know as uh, Lega per Salvini Premier. So the the league for Salvini as a prime minister emerged at a time with really different purposes, with really different messages, but was able to erode a consistent part of the Catholic uh, uh, consensus that uh, the Democristian party had in, uh, in northern regions. And also, I mean, they were able to maintain their votes uh, in the south, but in the, the south also see a rise of uh, the neo-fascists that were now more politically legitimated, because uh, There has always been in the First Republic a so-called Conventio ad Excludendum, which is a Latin formula to say that although the neo-fascist party, the MSI, was in the parliament, there was an agreement tacit between all other parties in not allowing the MSI to take part in the government. This only happened in the First Republic once, under governo Tambroni, under the Tambroni government, which was a democristian government with the approval of the MSI. This government fell after a couple of months because there were disorders in Italy. Also at the same time, the neo fascist party decided to make their national Congress in Genoa. Genoa is a city in North of Italy, which is a gold medal uh, for uh, resistance. So there were riots literally there. So the government collapsed in like a couple of months, you know, um, like three months. So the neo-fascists under the newborn second Republic were more legitimate. First of all, because they started to change their shape. The new secretary is, uh, oh, I'm totally getting out of the argument anyway. I'm Not talking about Gladio now, sorry.
1: No, no, it's perfectly fine to hear.
0: Okay, if, if you want, I, I continue, otherwise I stop.
1: Well, actually, if you don't mind, uh in the next little bit, because I, I may have to go soon, for okay. you know, I definitely want to do an, another one after this because everything you're talking about is, is incredibly interesting. But if you don't mind doing a brief summary for next time of the main events of of, of Gladio, like what are the main things that we should focus on? You mentioned the kidnapping and, and killing of Moro. Other things, so
0: like, what are the main policies of- Another thing that I can mention that perhaps it's, uh, I mean, it's related to Gladio to some extent, but probably was not a plan organized by NATO is the so-called Piano Solo, which is, uh, uh, I mean, generally there is not a lot of discussion about it, but it's something that comes from our uh, security forces, from our Carabinieri. Uh, we remember that in Italy we have the police, but we also have the carabinieri, which perform uh, very similar functions to some extent. Now, uh, in 1964, uh, there is a reveal of a plan, uh, the solo plan, which tells you anyway how still Some parts of the Italian leadership were afraid of a communist revolt because this solo plan consists in saying if we have to repress communists, we take the main members of the trading unions, so of the trade unions of CGL. CGL was at the time the biggest trade union in Italy and was. its political attachments were both the communist and the socialist party that in the sixties were divided because the popular front of 1948, because of its success, didn't last very long. And also because in the sixties, they started, the socialists started to participate actively in the governments with the Christian democratic party, while the communists were basically left outside of the government. They didn't want to take part in it. This solo plan tells us that in case of a communist revolution or any way, a situation in which it is perceived that communists are too powerful, what we should do is to take, I mean, it's it's, uh, quite weird because also, I mean, you see this in perspective 50, 60 years after It's almost a laugh riot, but anyway, if you look at it in perspective, it makes you think of how weird things were in Italy. This solo plan stated that we take the main leaders of the trade unions, so this CGL, we take the most, let's say, again, important leaders of the Communist Party, and we deport them to Sardinia. And uh,
1: so a little bit like Napoleon, they were going to try and do a Napoleon. Sort of.
0: uh, This looks also pretty similar, even if, uh, I mean, it's as tragic as the instrument used under fascism, which is the instrument of confino, which is, I don't know if I can translate it with confinement, meaning that if you are an anti-fascist living in Turin, we forced you to go to live very far from Turin. You go to live in center Italy, in South Italy. Perhaps even uh, we can. I mean, com- confinement most of the time means uh, meant imprisoning, imprisonment in some specific islands. For example, Ventotene. Uh, so this means, uh, since uh, I mean, as, as humans we are social beings, particularly if we are political political beings. Uh, we uh, we leave you in a place with no one else, or in, in which you are also under some form of informal surveillance. So we are sure that uh, you don't continue anymore with your political activity. This was very similar to this instrument of the solo plan. The solo plan uh, was revealed, I think, by some journalists. In a way, there was an escape of uh, uh, news. So this, uh, we became aware of this plan in some way. Uh, Anyway, uh, I mean, of course it was never applied, but anyway, it tells you that still in 1964, uh, vertexes of the government and of our military forces, uh, anyway, were still concerned about it. What happens? We know that later uh, the strategy of tension that starts in 1968 with the bomb in uh, Piazza Fontana, uh, which is a square in Milan in which you have uh, the Bank of Agriculture, a bomb was put inside this bank and it killed um, several people. And it was a dramatic event um, in the middle of the First Republic because it was 24 years after the end of the uh, Second World War. And if you do 1969 plus uh, 24, uh, well, you get basically the end of the First Republic because you get 1993, which, so it's a sort of pivotal event at the center of the First Republic. Now, this event inaugurates the strategy of tension, of course, but what happens after with the so-called uh, Golpe Borghese is even worse, perhaps. Now, of course, we don't know if there was a direct involvement of Gladio, although it is probable that there was a link, and I will later say why. Uh, What is uh, the Golpe Borghese and who is Borghese? Now, Borghese in Italy, known as the Black Prince, was uh, a fundamental member, uh, let's say, of the fascist elite. He was uh, mainly a fighter. In particular, he was the the, the leader of the so-called Decima Mass, which means 10th Mass where MAS is not uh, M-A-S-S, but it's M-A-S, an acronym that in Italian refers to a particular unit, an elite unit of soldiers. These soldiers were uh, naval soldiers. In Italy, we call them incursori, and uh, this corp uh, still exists, although with a different name, of course. now, if you say that you like the 10th Mass, uh, it's apology of fascism in Italy, more or less, uh, even though it's not completely true, because it once well, happened that I saw someone in uh, one of the villages near my house uh, wearing a t-shirt of the 10th Mass, uh, nothing happened to him. No one uh, threw a bottle at him, although I would have seen it as legitimate, <laughs> So this guy was, you know, because they say, um, uh, but you know, I like the military history. So that's why I like the Decima Mass, the 10th Mass. No, yeah, it's like it's those like, who collect yeah. Nazi memorabilia. Right. Some or, or of Confederate, them are only like it, yeah. others are Nazi.
1: Right, and, and, and people who connect, collect yeah. the Confederate memorabilia and say exactly. they're military historians
0: yeah, exactly. But uh, so uh, Union?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask, he, he just to add, he also participated in the invasion of Ethiopia as well under Mussolini.
0: Yes, Uh, okay, I didn't know that, but okay, it's completely understandable because again, he was an important member of uh, the military forces. He was the leader of this 10th mass and after the armistice, he was recruiting in the military army in my own town. So, I mean, a lot of things happened in my own town. Now, Borghese, um, of course, after the uh, Second World War is in contact with the neo-fascist party. I think that uh, for a certain period of time, a very brief one, is also the honorary president of the party. Although I don't think he he, he does never enter in the parliament. Anyway, uh, in uh, 1971, so at the beginning of the 70s, he tries a golpe. Now, this golpe in Italy sometimes sounds like a joke, also, because uh, the main military uh-huh. support of this golpe would have been the Forestal Guard, which uh,
1: so I mean, so like the like the border uh, the Forest Service, something
0: like that. Yeah, like the they protect the woods. Service. Yeah. So ones... it's like
1: the yeah. the Park Service people basically trying exactly. to do a coup. Yeah. Exactly. yeah okay. Which <laughs> now
0: in Italy does not exist anymore because since a couple of years uh, ago they are now part of Carabinieri. So now you have uh, forest carabinieri basically, forest service carabinieri, carabinieri forestal. Now this uh, um, group, let's say, uh, starts, uh, I mean, the idea is uh, we start a golpe, somehow we are able to overthrow the government. Also consider that again, we are in a period of strategy of tension. So clearly the government has problems in terms of public order. I mean, the 68 was still ongoing, uh, strikes, uh, the bomb of 1979 and all its aftermath, the death of Pinelli, uh, the emergence of the first uh, groups, uh, let's say, uh, of uh, communist armed groups like Lotta Continua, as an example, uh, who were the ones probably killing uh, uh, Commissar Calabresi, which was accused of having caused or uh, at least, not avoided the death of Pinelli, which was an anarchist held responsible of the bomb in Piazza, Mont- in Piazza Fontana. Of course, uh, he was not the responsible. Probably, the responsible,s uh, you can find them among the uh, the far right, not the uh, the far left, and not by anarchists, of
1: course. Right, and just to go just to go for a brief second more into the Piazza Fontana bombing. So this is 1969 uh two bombs set off in in Milan and Rome or three bombs i suppose and and so you're saying basically it's a it's a gladio operation for the most part
0: well i don't know if we can say this i mean that it's difficult and i mean also the problem is that you probably have no evidence on this What we can say anyway is that the strategy of tension, whoever tried it and also whoever gave the logistic support to do it uh, was with the intention of destabilizing a country that was not uh, already really stable. Because I mean, the sixties were a golden age for Italy, but we are out of the sixties now. We are in the seventies with an economic crisis approaching, stagflation and all of the rest. Which produced additional problems in Italy, economic problems, but still problems. I mean, we are Marxists, so we give importance to these problems. Then, of course, it d- depends how they are framed, of course. Uh, but anyway, the idea was we destabilize the government so we can, um, you know, push for more authoritarian solutions. This was the idea. The Golpe Borghese probably places inside this strategy because it should have been, I mean, uh, it depends how you read it, as the sort of apex. I mean, it's, it's a golpe. It's a way in which we say, okay, we get rid of the democratically elected government. Uh, we do something new. Now, the, it's not uh, actually correct to say that the golpe, the golpe fails because the golpe actually never starts. Uh, it seems, and again, we don't know why, we can only speculate on it, that just before it's put into practice, uh, Borghese says ALT and says that he's not anymore available to carry out the operation and the operation is immediately suspended, you know, uh, so- disrupted.
1: So something came up like he he had a dentist appointment instead and he he wasn't able to. uh,
0: Yeah, the main uh, theory that I I have heard is that uh, Borghese at a certain point understood that the political referee, so um, sorry, the referee, uh, the political figure that would have supported the golpe uh, would, uh, would not have been Borghese but Andreotti. So basically Borghese felt as if he has been, you know, um, how can I say, uh, overcome by someone else. And so he said, well, if I have to do the golpe for Andreotti, I won't do the golpe. Which, and then uh, Borghese basically escaped. Also because uh, this is relevant to notice, this golpe again happened in, uh, in Italy at the beginning of the 70s. I don't remember exactly the year, But uh, it only came to evidence to the general public uh, in uh, 1973, which was also the year of the golpe in Chile. And this is where the strategy of the communist party of the historical compromise started. We have to secure democracy in Italy because uh, we can can, uh, become the new Chile.
1: Well, Well, this is an interesting note to think about the connection between the world this worldwide uh and particularly in latin america the operation condor that was doing a lot of these coups and supporting neo-fascist yeah. uh, far right you know like pinochet in, in chile but i had never made the the connection that it was the exact same year and Yeah, the connection in Italy
0: was made because the discovery of the golpe was the same year of the golpe in Chile. So clearly from a temporal point of view, they were unrelated, but still, I mean, in Italy, we saw uh, that there was anyway a a similarity between the two. In Chile, you had an overall fragile democracy anyway with a government democratically elected. In Italy, the same, because again, In in 73, we are getting to the middle of the seventies. So problems are starting to rise in Italy. Uh, And so, uh, I mean, we are afraid of following the same steps of Chile, meaning we are afraid that someone makes an authoritarian reactionary uh, right-wing goal, which is uh, the, the the main reasoning on why the historical compromise, which was the idea of allowing the communist party in Italy to become a member of the government started. Also because uh, then it was a cascade of events because in 75, uh, there was a round of administrative elections, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, the the Italian communist gained a lot of consent, a lot of consensus, so relevant. And also in 1976, we had an anticipated round of political elections because in Italy mandates last five years. The previous elections were in 1972, so 72 from 76. It's only four years, so the the term was ended one year in advance. And in these uh, elections, we see almost a triumph, not total, of course, but relevant of the uh, of the communist party again with. Uh, Berlin saying that one Italian out of three votes communist. And he is indeed right, because uh, uh, 33, 34% was the percentage gained by the Communist Party. Consider that uh, since uh, its foundation uh, on the other side, uh, the uh, Demo-Christian Party basically experienced a gradual collapse. So they, they had more than 50 in 1948, but in 1976, they had 38 four points of difference with the communist, not uh, not a lot, actually. The Demo-Christian party was actually afraid of this. And this is where the historical compromise effectively started to take place. We have photos of reunions and meetings, and also uh, shake, uh, hands shaking um, between uh, Moro and uh, Berlinguer. Berlinguer was the chairman of the Communist party. Moro at the time was uh, I don't know if it was also this, the chairman of the Demo-Christian party, but anyway, he was the only big personality in um, the Demo-Christian party that could have made such a deal because he was the more left-oriented one, let's say. And so then we know things clearly, uh, completely escalated because again, strategy of tension continued. No? Remember in 1974, we have the episode of the Italicus, a bomb placed on a, on, a, on, a, on a train. Again, also quite relevant and dramatic. And then of course, as we approach clearly the 76, 77, clearly 77 in Italy, it's uh, uh, let's say the sequel of 1968 to some extent, no? even though it is much more violent because we see the rise of the Red Brigades, again, of Lotta Continua, the PAC, and all of this stuff. So, I mean, which created some problems in terms of public order. Generally, the, the, what is considered among the many to be the final event of this season is the bomb placed in Bologna Uh, railway station in 1980, It is, uh, you know, with the beginning of the 80s, which were, again, a period of growth, you know, uh, Milano da Bere and all of this stuff. So, you know, the UP Milan and all of this stuff. uh, It was also a period of, uh, let's say, uh, spread happiness, also because the the season of uh, left-wing terrorism was basically closing to some extent. Also because uh, among the many things, yeah.
1: So you you mentioned the yuppies of Milan, so you had like uh, Italian Patrick Bateman. Yeah, definitely. Uh,
0: I think I told you about this. In Italy, it is very famous, the expression Milano da bere, which means Milan to drink, because there was a famous TV ad of an Italian liquor, liquor Ramazzotti, you can find the ad still on YouTube, that basically presents by using as a soundtrack, the wonderful Birdland by Weather Report, which is a Z- uh, jets fusion uh, uh, gem, let's say nice, uh, nice uh, piece, I like it, of course, presents uh, uh, the, a city like Milan that is uh, never sleeping, full of activity, full of white collars, and all of this stuff. A city that is extremely active a city that is the closest equivalent that you can find in Italy of uh, a financial capital. I mean, Milan was the financial capital, was still is the financial capital of Italy. So, which, which is why you hate Milan so much. Yeah, to some extent, also because this idea of Milano da bere never really expired in Milan. Milan had uh, some periods of crisis, particularly um, the first decade of the year 2000s were, I don't think were great years for Milan. Milan started to emerge again with the expo. Uh, I don't remember exactly the year. Anyway, the expo in Milan contributed to renew the image of Milan abroad. Now it's an expanding city. It is stealing literally people from Turin. Turin is another industrial city in Northern Italy but it's pretty close to Milan. They are in different regions, but I mean, with a a high speed train, it takes 45 minutes to go from Turin to uh, Milan. And lots of things have been stolen uh, from Turin uh, by Milan. For example, um, a book festival, a relevant book festival and all of other things. Turin is declining in population. So uh, it's an ongoing crisis. So the 80s in Italy were the decade of Milan for different reasons. Also because again, Milan was the financial capital, And also because the party that was emerging at the time was the Socialist Party. But very different from the Socialist Party that we knew in the 50s, in the 60s, that was as left leaning as the um, Communist Party, more or less. But uh, uh, the leadership was completely changed because since 1976, the leader of the party, yeah, I think it's 1976, is a craxi, Bettino Craxi. Craxi uh, comes from Milan, uh, yes, but he's, uh, I mean, he's a rampant young man to some extent. He represents, you know, the, the 80s way to socialism. I wouldn't say that he's the equivalent of Tony Blair in Italy, Uh, this would be a misconception. But anyway, Craxi tried to remodernate a lot the party and also making it more appealing also for professional figures. The the mayor of Milan for uh, several terms was basically a member of the Socialist Party and Milan was the center of power of this party. A party that emerged, but uh, be careful, was never extremely powerful. Also because in Italy, with the proportional electo- electoral system, electoral system that lasted until the end of the First Republic, you didn't really need 50% to rule. You can be, um, in Italy we use the expression, the needle of the balance. I don't know if you have an equivalent in America meaning that if you have even a small percentage of votes and they think that the socialists never went above uh, 15 uh, still you were able to participate in the government to have some ministries perhaps even to become a prime minister along with, right. of course other parties clearly the democristian party which was a necessary presence of
1: course. right you can you i guess we would we would say something like a, a kingmaker you can like decide who exactly the will be. Yeah,
0: exactly it was definitely a kingmaker you're right i was reading a book in these last days exactly about what happened in italy between 1989 and 1994 from a let's say political main sort of mainstream point of view and yes sometimes they exactly use the expression kingmaker the author uses this expression to refer to craxi and his party craxi became prime minister first in 1983 And uh, his first government was one of the longer lasting governments in Italy because it lasted almost four years, which is a a record in Italy. Which is
1: really long in Italy, yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Because even if terms are five years, you never have a government that lasts five years. I think that the, the, I don't remember now if the absolute record is the Craxi one or uh, Berlusconi government. Because when Berlusconi won the elections in 2001, the mandate was 2001, 2007, 2006, sorry. He was able to rule between the uh, con- continuously between these five years, but uh, in the last year, he had to do a so-called uh, reimpasto, a reshaking of the government. But the government was the same from 2001, 2005. So still, uh, it's one of the longest ever uh, Uh, governments that we had in Italy, but because, again, in Italy, it's not important uh, what is the government, because at the end of the day, the government is made by the same parties. The problem is that uh, for events like uh, uh, local elections, uh, administrative elections, or geopolitical balances, uh, uh, continuously uh, they need some time to, you know, disrupt the previous government and make a new one by adjusting some elements. For example, a ministry that was previously in the hands of the Socialist Party now is in the end of the Demo-Christian one, etc. But the, the government in its essence remains the same, which is why we use the expression uh, continuity uh, within discontinuity. Discontinuity is formal, so Governments change because you see their names changing, but you still have continuity. The underground, the essence remains the same.
1: Yeah, I mean, okay. Everything you said is a very interesting overview of of Gladio. I wanted to talk about uh, the American role or the NATO role in the whole thing. I mean, I, I remember from things my dad has told me growing up um you know growing up in, in vicenza he his father was in the american military and so he grew up near the american uh, uh base there in vicenza but to what extent was the american military really like still occupying italy after world war ii and how did they use that state of occupation to continue using nato to do gladio basically
0: well clearly um uh the Americans, once Italy was freed, they maintained some bases. You have a lot of them. The one in Vicenza, so Aviano, Uh, the one, uh, there is also one near Pisa, which is Camp Derby and a lot of others. Um, And also there was clearly, obviously, for military reasons, a very strict relationship clearly between the military corps in Italy and the ones in the U.S., obviously. Uh, Still nowadays, this is ongoing, again, obviously. I know a lot of uh, friends of mine that have their parents, their father most of the time in the military, and some of them uh, actually, either they were literally born in the U.S. because their father was working there, or for some period of time, their father was located, again, in the U.S., working like in Washington, all these uh, bureaucratic roles. I would say, I mean, probably at the time was different. And it's a time I didn't live, so I really don't have the experience of it. But uh, overall, this occupation has always been seen in Italy, I would say, as soft occupation. In some cases, even appreciated. Because consider that a lot of, uh, this is a musical reference, but I mean, it still tells you a lot of things socially. Um, if you ask to a lot of Italian artists that, for example, started their activity in the 50s or in the 60s, they will always tell you, some of them at least, that they, uh, their love with music started with the fact that either they lived near an American basis or they were able to catch on the radio frequencies, uh, the radio uh, for the military soldiers. And so they were able to listen to music that in Italy was not available at that time. Rock and roll, blues, that's it. Also, because at the beginning, imported vinyls were difficult to obtain, which is why you have artists in Italy that literally made their success in Italy by uh, simply redoing uh, American or English songs, mostly American. You redo them as covers, perhaps you, okay, you translate the test, or sometimes you may even change it completely, but then the melody remains the same. So
1: I I know, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, I know that how important the American radio was my uh, grandfather on my dad's side was the one he was he in the American military was in the Army Radio Corps. And he was doing the more of like sports announcement, like he he would narrate for uh, sports games, but still the radio for the American military was listened to by Italian people as well. So it was very prominent.
0: Yes, 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 yes. Also, because uh, in Italy, after the Second World War, so with the encounter with the American soldiers, I would say consistent, part of the population had a fascination for uh, English speaking people, and in particular for the Americans. You have a lot of films, a lot of songs of the 50s, focalizing exactly on this. For example, you have the famous song, Napolitan song, Tu vo Fal americano, which is, uh, you want to behave like an American, That is the story of this uh, guy uh, living in Naples, uh, behaving uh, and wearing clothes uh, like an American. Uh, of course, uh, in this song, he is mocked uh, because, uh, I mean, he, he looks like an idiot. OK, because, for example, there is a C- he likes to drink whiskey and soda, even though it hurts his stomach after. Or another nice thing is that when he's talking with a girl under the moon, instead of saying ti amo, uh, which is I love you in Italian, says directly, I love you in English. And the girl does not even understand. So, I mean, you have ruined the magical moment. And also you have the, the famous movie, Un Americano a Roma, An American in Rome by Sordi, in which again, he's a young guy fascinated by the Americans wearing baseball caps, jeans uh, trying to speak some English, even though he's not able to do so. Uh, So, I mean, it's also, it's quite comical, of course. But yes, there was this type of fascination, also because generally, I would say the American soldiers were preferred to the English ones, on average by the population. Also because we said at the end of the war, the Americans actually appreciated the area of revolution in Italy. Revolution meaning that we were shifting from a monarchy to a republic. While the English ones would have liked to maintain the republic. Because they, wouldn't, they didn't want order to change too much in Italy. Also because they understood that Italy at the end of the day is a peninsula. It's a bridge in the middle of the Mediterranean. So, I mean, it's a crucial point. Uh, If I remember, I don't remember if it was related to World War II, but uh, I remember that the English army for a while uh, wanted to do something like in Sicily, like transforming it into a military base or something like that. I mean, something completely crazy. While Americans, again, were a little bit more uh, preferred, let's say, by the population. And uh, this... um, The fact that they have been appreciated also results in the fact that, for example, you still see nowadays uh, people that were born in the late 40s or in the first 50s with English names, sometimes uh, misspelled. Uh, I have uh, a friend of mine whose aunt is named James because when he was born, his mother wanted to call him James. But at the, you know, when you go to register someone's name, uh, they didn't know how to write it uh-huh. and they misspelled the J for an I. Wow. Because in Italy, we used to call J uh, Ilunga, or uh-huh. uh, Ilunga is the Y. Okay. So I, 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 this man is not called James, but James.
1: Wow. That's hilarious. Which,
0: I mean, sounds like, uh, I don't know. Uh, completely deranged thing. I mean, it's totally (laughs) mad. And you have a lot of cases of this Uh. stuff. Of course, clearly there were oppositions because of course, uh, communists or those that are against this occupation, those that are against the, um, let's say, also the Marshall Plan that again happened in 47. And it's uh, the main reason why the country turned blue instead of red. Um, Basically, of course, uh, this occupation was hostile for communists, but also for the extreme right wing. I mean, also the the neo-fascists, like uh, the MSI, did not like the presence of the Americans, also because for them it was a continuous renewal of the fact that they have lost the war. That's it, Uh, nothing more. And uh, we still pay, nowadays, uh, this sort of dominance. For example, in military terms, uh, as we know, Italians do not have nuclear weapons. We cannot have them uh, because, uh, okay, I mean, we are under NATO, so we are protected anyway, uh, but we do not have our own um, nuclear weapons as Germany. I assume that also Germany doesn't have nuclear weapons, while France, uh, they have nuclear weapons, as an example, also a consistent arsenal. Which is one of the main problems when discussing, oh, we should do a European army, we should unify national European armies, is is, oh okay, but what you do with the nuclear weapons? Some states cannot own them, technically. Another thing that we cannot have are uh, uh, carriers, so um, you know, big ships, I, I, you call it
1: Air, aircraft carriers. Yeah. Air,
0: aircraft carriers. We cannot have them. Uh, we can have helicopter carriers that are a little bit smaller. So, right? it's, it's weird. And uh, uh, so, another thing that I wanted to say is that, okay, notice that uh, here we see, anyway, a convergence, even though I don't believe in the horseshoe theory, of course, we see a convergence between. Uh, Extreme left and extreme right on this opinion because both are against clearly this military occupation for different reasons. Of course, Uh, the communists, because they prefer looking at the Soviet Union. The um, fascists, of course, do not appreciate neither the US nor the Soviet Union, but they want to restore, you know, full sovereignty, independence, etc. Uh, another important thing, okay, uh, Ah, is that uh, anyway, throughout the history, both parties, so both the communist party and the fascist party, at a certain point, uh, will claim uh, that they prefer more to be philo-Atlantic, so more to be philo-US, than uh, being uh, Soviet, uh, Philo-Soviet for the communist, or let's say independent sovereign for the fascist. This happened in uh, different occasions, particularly for the communist party. We know that uh, under the, um, when Berlinguer was chairman, probably Berlinguer predicted anyway, that uh, he literally used this expression that uh, the revolution of October has uh, ended uh, Its uh, uh, progress, let's say. So it's a process. So the the effect of the revolution, of the the October revolution for Berlinguer, were stuck at a dead end, which is why probably when he was in Bulgaria, they tried to kill him. And he also said that he believed to be more secure under the umbrella of NATO. I mean, probably the theory is that although I don't think Berlinguer overall. uh, It can be appreciated from a lot of point of view of views, but I don't think that after the fall of the uh, historical compromise, he was not able anymore uh, to, you know, have a clear strategy. He had some fixed points like the moral question, uh, the moral issue, sorry, more than the moral question, the moral issue, but apart from that, uh, he lost a little bit the compass because uh, times were difficult. Also, one may say he was foreseeing the fall of the Soviet bloc, or at least he was seeing the Soviet bloc turning into something that was not anymore communist and not uh, um, something that was anymore producing uh, you know, innovation and progress. One may say also this thing, which is why the next big tactic of uh, uh, Berlinguer was the so called Eurocommunism. So instead of uh, small, because they were starting to become small, European, Western European Communist parties that have to uh, respect what the Soviet Communist Party says, let's make a federation of our own. For example, the main parties involved here were the communists, were the French communists, so the PCF, uh, the PCE, so the uh, party in Spain and also in Portugal. Also considering that Spain and Portugal at the time were newborn democracies, because they were they had revolted against Salazar and Franco, and they were uh, generally left leaning, I would say. But anyway, again, then the Euro communism failed uh, simply because the parties involved were were not powerful. I mean, the most powerful was the Communist Party, which never achieved the power in, uh, in the government. Then they had the regional power in some regions, so.
1: And yeah. can you, I think the next topic, I, I think we should go more into the Communist Party itself, talk about. Uh, post-World War II, what the Communist Party was, who was in charge and you know, what its main principles were, what its activities were. So if you want to give maybe like a brief run through of the Communist Party after World War II.
0: Okay. So as, I, as we said before, basically Togliatti becomes chairman of the party. The party already undertakes a transformation that is relevant at least to mention. Books have been written on this, uh, but I will simply mention it. Before the resistance, so because the Communist Party was founded in 1921, it basically, it it consisted in uh, uh, an exit from the Socialist Party. If we go even backwards, the Socialist Party was founded in 1892. So still we are Kingdom of Italy. So the old liberal, republic where with liberal, I do not intend it in the American sense, but in the European sense. So, well, not really a republic, I will say liberal monarchy, sorry, uh, in which liberal means that only elites can vote. This is uh, liberalism in Italy. At that time, you do politics in, uh, we call them salotti, in dining rooms, uh, in uh, halls, basically because uh, only a small part of the population has uh, um, voting rights. In the parliament, mainly you have the so-called Sinistra Storica, the historical left, uh, liberals uh, like the Whigs in England, more or less, and then you have uh, Destra Storica, so the historical right uh, that represents uh, uh, conservatives, nationalists, and all this stuff. The socialist party that is founded in 1892 is a great change in the game. At first, uh, uh, the socialists gradually substitute uh, the main ideology at the time that was common through farmers and uh, workers, which was uh, anarchism. They are gradually able to substitute it. They get involved in the parliament Although they are actually never able to gain the government before the uh, Second World War before fascism, of course if we want, even though one of its most important uh, leaders, Turati, who is considered the uh, so the, the embodiment of uh, what does it mean to be a socialist and uh, reform and uh, yeah, you mean re- reformer no? Yes, okay. He was the embodiment of socialism and reformism at the same time. He had some contacts with Giolitti, who was uh, prime minister in Italy many times uh, before uh, the advent of fascism. He was the main political figure in Italy after Cavour, which was the one that unified Italy politically. And uh, uh, Giolitti wanted, even though Giolitti was a centrist, He wanted the Turati to be part in the government in order to, you know, enlarge its consensus, also because uh, now we are getting in the 20th century and suffrage was gradually enlarged, finally to all men. Women could only vote after the Second World War. Even though as a note, this is nice to say, vote to women was given technically under fascism. Women, uh, could vote in fascism to um, local elections. The problem was that local elections were suspended in Italy under fascism because mayors were nominated directly by central authorities. So women had no physical possibility to vote under fascism, although they were technically allowed to. I mean, this is something that, I mean, it's it's terrible. I mean, it's, um, it's literally mocking people, you know, when you use law to mock people. So uh, the next step is okay. We arrive at the Congress of Livorno. Livorno is another uh, city in Tuscany. Tuscany will become another red region. And uh, it's a very left-leaning city. No wonder that the Socialist Party has decided to do there its uh, Congress, its uh, yearly Congress. And this Congress participate some uh, members of the Socialist Party at the time uh, that, however, declared that they want to fund, to to, to fund, uh, to develop a new party. The Communist Party of Italy, not the difference. Because previously I always talked about Italian Communist Party. Now it's Communist Party of Italy. It's also written differently. This one is PCD, the other one is PC. There is a difference. This party is, of course, minoritarian with respect to the socialist one. Uh, the socialists, uh, i mean—there are some, uh, uh, let's say, proof, uh, proofs, uh, tentatives to recut, to sorry, uh, re, uh, remelt this cut between the two sides. But, uh, I mean, it is in the end impossible. The main figures at the time inside the Communist Party are clearly Gramsci. Obvious, I mean, Gramsci is the communist intellectual in Italy, and it's probably one of the best known Italian intellectuals in the world of the the 20th century. Um, And then also Togliatti, who is a a close friend of uh, Gramsci, we may say. Then we also have others for example, uh, uh, Bordiga, but I mean, Bordiga is much more uh, controversial, let's say, as a figure. Amadeo Bordiga is he, later basically, he's, he sort of suffered of a so called, let's say, dannazio memoria. He was uh, uh, gradually, let's say, exiled by the Communist Party. Now, the Communist Party, this Communist Party, which is again PCD, so Communist Party of Italy takes part to the elections. Again, results are overall really poor. With the advent of fascism, we know fascism comes to power in 1922 with the March on Rome, which is not a push like, or a golpe like in Italy. It is is actually a proof of strength. Strength, to some extent, strength, because when we have this March on Rome, Mussolini uh, is not in Rome. Mussolini is is in Milan, he's listening to the radio uh, about what happens in Rome, because he knows that in case the king does not appreciate this march, uh, Mussolini is already ready, uh, he's already ready, sorry, game on words, the play on words, to uh, escape uh, probably in Switzerland, I mean, uh, not being arrested. Anyway, the march on Rome is successful because the uh, king decides to give the mandate to form a government exactly to Mussolini, which uh, at the time was already present in parliament, uh, but it was of course in a minoritarian position. Remember also what happens before the March on Rome and before the split between the Socialist and the Communist Party. We have in Italy two years, 1919 and 1920, which are the so-called, it's called Biennio Rosso, which means uh, two years red. In this period, we have as an aftermath of the uh, First World War and overall um, poverty is, let's say, widespread in Italy. Italy as an industrial force was relatively weak. It was a late comer in the industrialization. It had political problems because it was not unified until 1861, et cetera, et cetera. So we were extremely weakened by the war effort. A war effort that, of course, well, of course, that unfortunately did not produce the results that we were expecting. Uh, also, in terms of uh, territories that we conquer, which is why generally we say that this, is, this uh, victory was mutilated. So some parts of it were effectively missing. At the Treaty of Versailles, we were uh, mistreated by others, let's see. This, uh, in this Biennior also what happens is a series of strikes, basically. Uh, strikes that are supported by the Socialist Party in particular by the more maximalist ones. So the one that are more close to the trade unions, the one that sort of advocate for a type of revolutionary change. This Biennio also risks to be a success in the sense that uh, we have a middle class that if it ever existed in Italy at the time, it was clearly declining because of Mass spread poverty under the First World War, and we have a working class that is rebelling. The, let's say, uh, communist interpretation of this period is that bien failed, and this is evident, but failed because, uh, and fascism emerged as a consequence because someone understood that if uh, this declining middle class And this working class would have been, that if they had been able to find an agreement uh, on on political power, of course, then things would have escalated in an unpredictable way. So fascism was introduced in the game as the armed and of uh, the Italian liberal demo, of the Italian liberal monarchy, of Italian capitalism, because of course, we do not have to forget that uh, the fascist regime and Mussolini, even before the fascist regime was approved, um, was approved, was sorry, put into practice, uh, was financed uh, consistently by industrial powers. Also because at the beginning, the so-called black, uh, um, Black squads, that were an informal militia, of course illegal, were used not to show strength and how fascism wanted to help Italians. They were actually forced to assault assault sections of cooperatives and of the Socialist Party. So in this picture, we then arrive to the period of clandestinity, meaning that when the um, communist party, sorry, when the fascist party it basically, proclaims the regime because the regime don, does not start really at 22; it starts between 25 and 26 with the so-called um, leggi fascistissime, that it can be translated as really fascist laws. Basically, um, Mussolini used a series of act, of expedients to restrict, uh, you know, uh, personal freedom, etc. Basically, by putting up. Uh, a dictatorship through a series of rules. Also because uh, someone in those tried to shoot at him. So also in the light of this security that was missing, he was able to make these rules. Now, most of the parties, even for example, the popular party, so the father of the Democristian party, basically uh, have to go uh, in clandestine, sort of, because the only party recognized is the national fascist And then the resistance started. Now, those that are in the Communist Party, so the volunteers, are extremely tough, meaning that they are moved by big ideas, by big energy also, and so they carry out uh, clandestine activities that are relevant. Some of them, of course, have uh, relationships with Russia. Soviet Russia, that at the time was clearly the point of reference. And some of them also then participate before the, first war, before the Second World War to the Spanish Civil War. There is a famous example near where I live. Uh, in Sarzana, again, a village which is 10 minutes far from where I live, the, fi- the figure of Ugo Muccino, Ugo, um, no, Muccini, sorry, yes, Ugo Muccini, is uh, um, extremely famous. Now, Ugo Muccini um, was, uh, uh, I mean, a a normal worker. I think that he was uh, like working in a sort of factory, you know, small factory, was a sort of artisan, but of course he was extremely involved in the Communist Party. And uh, for him, good things were prospected because uh, he should have been uh, allowed to go to Soviet Russia to study To become a cadre of the party, so a prominent figure, he decided, however, to take part in the Spanish Civil War, and he never came back. So he died there. And when um, the uh, partisans established their local brigades in this area, they dedicated it to this uh, to this man to this communist. With the resistance, also because of this clandestine activity ongoing, the relationship between the Socialist and the Communist Party actually inverts, because clearly, uh, before the resistance, the Socialist Party was the dominating one. It was the oldest, the older party between the two, the one also more eradicated in society, because it was present in several regions since, again, 1892. The Communist Party was able to emerge again during the resistance because of its coordination, its organization. Uh, Togliatti and all the others that took part in the Comitato di Liberazione Nazionale, so the Committee of National Liberation were trained. Also because uh, during these years, again, they had a relationship with uh, the Soviet Russia. They they received uh, training uh, also political, which is why, I mean, Togliatti was a master in the compromise. The change of Salerno, which was one of the constitutive phases of the Italian resistance, the one in which we said the first enemy are the fascists, so also the monarchy should allow with the partisans, because the first enemies to defeat are the fascists, then we will think about what to do with the monarchy later, and this is exactly what happened, is exactly a result of uh, Togliatti, let's say diplomatic ability, which is uh, probably incomparable. Once uh, at the end of the war, clearly uh, the communist party takes part in writing the Italian constitution and takes part in the first Italian government, in the first Italian governments, he is then basically taken out of the government in 1947 because the Gasperi, so the Demo-Christian prime minister at the time, decides that we have to uh, adhere. So receive the Marshall Plan and so communists should be taken out of power, taken out of the government. We have the elections in 1948. We, which we have this alliance with the Socialist Party led by many at the time. Um, anyway, the, the election is a sort of failure because we only get a 20% of the, uh, of the votes. Also because the electoral campaign was extremely strong on this. Uh, for example, the um, Democristian Party referred many times to a clearly Red scare topos. So he said many times to the mother, to the Italian mothers, that the red scare, the red uh, monster, will take their children and will eat them alive. Uh, so the the poster, uh, the, uh, the poster campaigns for uh, that election was extremely tough on this point of view. They also made a very nice poster in which. Uh, they drew the symbol of the front popular, of the popular front, so the face of Garibaldi. But if you turn it upside down, the face of Garibaldi becomes the face of Stalin. So this was like to say, ah, you think you are voting for patriots, you are voting for Italians. No, you are voting for people that just want the country to fall under Soviet control. Under Togliatti, anyway, the party is able to gain a consistent amount of votes uh, because by the death of Togliatti who dies in 1964, uh, the Communist Party amounts for 20, 25% of votes at the general election. So it is a relevant force, still at the opposition, of course, but relevant, who is nevertheless able to express power, positions of power in some uh, uh, regions, um, particularly in uh, the um, center regions of Italy, basically where the cooperative system is ongoing, and uh, where you can identify the so-called red regions, so Emilia Romagna, Tuscany, uh, Umbria, and if you want, uh, I mean Liguria, the region in which I live, not really, uh, but the, the, the province of La Spezia to some extent was a communist one. Then uh, after the death of uh, Togliatti, Togliatti indicates uh, as a dolphin, let's say, uh, so as a descendant to his role, Berlinguer, even though Berlinguer already becomes a secretary, if I'm correct, in 1972. Between uh, the death of uh, Togliatti and the appointment of Berlinguer, we have the, um, let's say, uh, Longo becomes a chairman. Longo is another important figure in the uh, Communist Party. He was closer to Secchia position, I think, instead of Togliatti once. But although, I mean, he was old at the time, so he basically continued more or less Togliatti's path. Also because Togliatti elaborated the so-called famous Italian way of socialism, the Italian way towards socialism. Which is, of course, a very complex, let's say, political philosophy that tries to keep together the fact that we are communist. So we want communism in Italy. But nevertheless, we also wrote the constitution. It's a sort of democratic socialism to some extent, if we want. We want our aim is to reach communism, so workers in power, but we want to do it by living inside the constitutional environment that we helped to shape. So we wanted to win the elections, basically. We want to establish a form of socialism that respects um, clearly uh, the constitution, let's say, at least in its initial phase, of course, we can easily imagine that if communists have been able to took power with the elections, uh, they would have tried to change the constitution more in their favor. Again, the constitution was the product of a compromise between very different forces. So clearly the communists had to, I mean, recognize uh, a lot of its passages uh, to other uh, political forces. And then finally, uh, this uh, elaboration sort of remains the center. I mean, it is what distinguishes basically the, commun- the Italian Communist Party from almost any other communist party in the world. Those who claim in Italy that we should fear uh, the Italian communists, uh, Uh, most of the time have a naive idea of what the Communist Party was. Of course, those that are at the left of the Italian Communist Party claimed that it never really was a Communist Party. It was closer to socialism in the Italian sense or to social democracy. Anyway, we had a Socialist Party, of course, and also a a social democratic one that was uh, a result of a division inside the Socialist Party. And the social democrat one was even more center oriented than the socialist one. In particular, uh, a lot of uh, criticism coming from more left-wing communists is exactly on the figure of Berlinguer. Because even though Berlinguer said that he didn't want to die social democrat, for someone, uh, this is actually what he ended up doing. Uh, Because of course, through time he relaxed the, uh, the relationship with Soviet Russia. He said something positive about NATO, about uh, Europe, about being allied of the West, allies of the West and not of the East, etc. etc. But again, as I was saying before, uh, this reflected uh, partially some confusion because uh, clearly, again, after the, fo- after the, the fall, of the historical compromise, uh, the strategy, the Communist Party was left without a strategy. The only thing they could advocate for was the moral issue. The moral issue meant very simply that it was well known to anyone that uh, Italian parties uh, were doing illegal practices, also in terms of funding. That is, uh, uh, For example, at the local level, they were able to extract money by public procurement. And uh, not even a law approving the public financing of parties in 1974 was actually able to solve the problem. This This was the problem that partially still continues nowadays, but that eventually resulted in the season of the judges that we see in Italy between 1992 and 1993. The moral issue of Berlinguer was exactly the idea that we as communists are pure, let's say, but it wasn't really put in this naive way. The idea is that there is a lack of morality in the political class. That was more or less uh, the judgment of Berlinguer. Of course, his strategy was then to underline that the Communist Party was purer than other parties. It was true, even though they still received illegal funding from Russia and nevertheless, where they had power, they were able to extract some illegal funding by public procurement. Now, we should say where this illegal funding went, uh, not only for the Communist Party, but for all parties in general, because it is, a a usual anti-political claim to say that, you know, this money was appropriated by leaders, by politicians and simply disappeared. It's not completely true. The probably the vast majority of this money went to the party itself. So constituted its reserves. The communist party and also the Christian Democrat, the socialist ones had current accounts also in countries outside of Italy where they used to store this money. So the idea is we steal because technically that's stealing it's illegal funding first for the party then of course if something is left for ourselves okay this is the the italian way sort of okay so this was accepted of course in this uh, frangent uh, the uh, communist party was the purest party But again, uh, because it was never able to achieve power at the national level. So he never entered into particular mechanisms. Again, at the regional level where they had power, they were able a little bit uh, to extract resources. Now, uh, the 80s, particularly with the rise of uh, uh, Craxi, and the death of Berlinguer, because Berlinguer dies in 1984 while still the chairman. He dies after a, a public speech in a, in, a, in a terrible circumstance. You can still find the speech on the net. It was held in Padova, if I remember correctly, in June, 1984. Basically, um, Berlinguer had a, an ictus, so, you know, a, a brain failure uh, while- giving uh, an, this- an aneurysm, yeah. An aneurysm, exactly. An aneurysm, yeah. So, you already see that during the last part of his speech, he's literally fainting, and people from the crowd understood that something was not, uh, was not going all right, and they repeatedly said, Stop, Enrico, stop, as saying, uh, You know, you have done enough. And he basically later fell into a coma when he was brought back to his hotel and then he never regained consciousness. It was a a terrible tragedy. Also consider that at the time, the Socialist Party, its attitude towards the Communist Party until the late seventies, even though uh, they were in the government and the the communists were not, was of being, uh, you know, subjugated also in terms of political power, in terms of percentage by the Communist Party. When Craxi started to gain power and became, along with the chairman, also the the leader, the embodiment of the Socialist Party, it became a really aggressive campaign against the Communist Party. It was a two-sided campaign because on the other side, the Communist Party at a certain point developed a sort of irrational hatred, Uh, well, irrational, to some extent, irrational hatred against the Socialist Party, claiming, for example, that since they were becoming the party of the Europeans, we would say nowadays, almost a neoliberal party, although this definition is not completely correct for the Socialist Party, they were the embodiment of the new right. They used exactly this expression. The Socialist Party is the new right, which to some extent is true, but this allowed uh, Craxi to have some power. Craxi was more modern than Berlinguer. Uh, I mean, there is no way to debate it, which is why I was able to have more power than Berlinguer as a result. Of course, then. Berlinguer, again, dramatically died in 84, but he left a party which was gradually decreasing in terms of uh, uh, electoral results. The the party never recovered to its 1976 results, basically. The party was declining again because the strategy was not clear and also because in Italy, we were having a change of mindset in Italy. Change of mindset, not only because Reagan and Thatcher were doing what they were doing, because in Italy, I mean, the real uh, season of neoliberalism came with the fall of the Berlin Wall, probably, but also because the political system was decaying, meaning that parties after the 70s, although they could claim some results, for example, having stopped terrorism, having secured Italy, and some minor economic results, uh, they were more or less decaying. They were losing the trust of people. Uh, so this is exactly the period, the 80s, in which we see the rise of uh, Liga Veneta, which would later become Liga Nord. All these uh, movements that uh, have a basic anti-political nature inside, again, populist uh, in the good, uh, in populist, I mean, in the, in the, in the right sense, okay, uh, so that they were anti-political, they were, they were against the politicians in Rome, they were against the Southern Italy because according to them, all the inefficiencies of the state uh, were done in favor of people in the South, which, okay, I mean, it's something completely deranged, of course. But uh, these uh, narrations contributed to increase uh, the crisis of the political system. Basically, one may say that starting with the 80s, parties uh, literally stopped to represent people. And this is of course a tragedy because our Republic was built on parties. No? According to a nice formula that I always like to quote made by Togliatti, uh, parties are democracy in progress. And clearly if parties uh, are not anymore developing but they are actually losing, democracy is losing as a whole. And also, you know, the media and the economic system in Italy started to see what was the future. The future was that these parties would have collapsed sooner or later. The media party, once the first scandals started to grow out in the late '80s, uh, because that the socialist uh, used to steal money was well known. Remember, Beppe Grillo. Beppe Grillo. He's the founder of the Five Star Movement in Italy, but uh, his most famous act was that he was exiled from public television because in 80 in 86, I think, and if it's not 86, it's 87, he did, he made a famous joke on a TV program uh, on Rai, so on the national broadcast service that was Uh, Craxi is uh, talking with Martelli, another socialist. Uh, Martelli was basically the dolphin of Craxi, so another member of the the Socialist Party. And he was saying, uh, um, uh, Martelli said, uh, um, Martelli said, oh Craxi, I know I went to China and they are all socialists there. And Craxi said, are you sure? But if they are all socialists, where do they steal from? I mean, it, it, it was a, a, a pretty terrible joke, but anyway, Beppe Grillo was basically exiled. And it
1: got, it got him kicked off TV for yeah, making exactly, that exactly. joke. Exactly,
0: he was kicked off. So, anyway, the rumors that something was happening, so that there were illegal fundings, of course, were present. Of course, the, the mediatic system speculated on this. For example, talk show in Italy instead of political tribunes started to emerge exactly in this context. These talk shows generally were done like at 9 p.m. So in prima serata, first evening, as we call it, were generally really sensational because they used to push cases that most of the time resolved into nothing. But nevertheless, again, they contributed to decrease the level of trust of people. And so finally we arrive to the end. So, to the end of the first Republic means meaning that parties start to collapse. The first one that actually changes name is exactly the Communist Party, because the fall of the Communist Party clearly coincides with the fall uh, of the Berlin Wall in 1989. I mean, uh, already uh, I think that the, the the famous process of change of the Communist Party into the Democratic Party of the Left was done in 1991, if I'm not mistaken. This party, uh, again, had a vagus identity, as I was saying before. They were, they were not socialist in the Italian sense because they didn't like that term. But they were not even social democrats because they still recalled Berlinguer saying, uh, I don't want to die as a social democrat. But they were not even any more anymore communists. And also they started to do something that already the late communist party did when it was completely deranged. So after the death of Berlinguer, that is advocating for some change emerging from the civil society. So from the citizens living outside of politics. This is an ongoing type of narration going on in Italy, because you basically assume that the population is better than those who rule the population. Wait a second. Ciao. Okay. He's saying night. Yeah. And so uh, the situation is that the, all these new parties that started to emerge generally advocated for a change coming from, you know, the civil society. So from normal population, uh, professional, entrepreneurs, workers, whatever. It was like when Cicerone in one of his old works referred to the so-called boni, who are the boni. Boni are the good part of society that needs to emerge because again, it's the good part of society. So it should rule because it's the good part. But also this after all contributed even less to actually Produce a decay in Italian politics uh, because, again, this fable that uh, the society is better than the politicians, of course, it's, uh, I mean, completely false. Parts of society, not all, of course, so not workers, lived on the shoulders of politicians. Consider the economic and the financial system. I mean, in Italy, you had the state owned enterprises or private enterprises that were founded with state money. So, Still, a lot of industrial groups were actually helped by the um, by the Italian society, after all, because this is our money, technically, or by the state. Again, this proves that uh, uh, Gramsci was correct in saying that when we talk of res publica, which means public thing, something that belongs to everyone, we only use it to socialize losses and privatize uh, profits, basically. So, I mean, using public debt as a way to helping private uh, enterprises that otherwise will be driven out of the market that are non-efficient, that just exist to increase the profits of the owners, uh, clearly is a a good example of this. Gramsci even a hundred years later was completely correct. And then finally, uh, I mean, after the Democratic Party of the left, we have uh, a new embodiment, which arises in 1998, which is the um, Left Democrat. Democrats it's called because it's uh, Democratici di Sinistra. Yes. Later on, this um, uh, party basically is always in a coalition with the uh, and named Ulivo, which means uh, olive tree. Uh, with the left parts, with the left souls of the the old Christian Democratic Party. Finally, we do, we do, they do, I should say, in 2007, what uh, should have been done 10 years before, probably. So they create a single group, a single center left party, and they call it Democratic Party. Now, why do I say that they should have done it 10 years before? Because such a party, would have been perfect during the first Republic because in the, uh, during the end of the first Republic because at the beginning of the second we had a majoritarian electoral rule and then a perfect Bipolarism because we had Berlusconi on the other side and the Prodi D'Alema on the other one. If you do, if you had done such a party, again, the Democratic Party at those times you would have easily won because you would have done an operation like Blair, basically, while they decided to make this party in 2007, which was already a time in which uh, the the Second Republic was declining. The crisis was approaching. After 2008, I mean, the the ending point was 2011-2012 with the sovereign debt crisis in Europe, the last Berlusconi government fell, we had the first technical government of Monti. It was not the first in uh, Italian history. We already had the technical government of Amato exactly uh, by the end of the, sec- of the First Republic. Between the First and the Second Republic, we had a technical government. Um, first uh, again by, oh, sorry, yeah, by Amato and also more, even more technical, the one by Ciampi which lasted like 10 months and came before uh, the government of Berlusconi, the first government of Berlusconi. Then we had the Monti government uh, with all of the following happening, Renzi Gentiloni, and then now we are to recent times in which we are back with a technical government, which is the one by Draghi. So one may say that also the Third Republic, which is probably the one that emerged in 2018 with the new uh, characters of uh, Lega per Salvini Premier and the five-star movement has already declined because here what happens is that every time you have technical government, a phase gets closed. We will see what we have next, probably nuclear annihilation uh, thanks uh, to the Ukrainian-Russian war. Inshallah. We
1: can only pray that that will be the outcome for Italy. Yeah. As yeah.
0: And also, um, something okay, outside of the of this, so I mean, you can even stop recording. The um, this is something nice. Um, in all the Soviet strategy plans in case of a nuclear war against Italy, only one bomb would have been dropped in Italy, and it would have been dropped in Padova, which is I which mean is not far uh, from Vicenza, not, because still uh, you have a lot of things going there.
1: Right. Well, my dad told me stories about growing up and. When Chernobyl exploded when he was in, in Vicenza, he I, I remember telling you about his experience of having to deal with the agriculture and, and how exactly. it, yeah they are, it afterwards.
0: Yes, they told people not to consume milk and the related products for a while, yes, yes. And in case a bomb is dropped on Padova, the fallout strike will be a sort of vertical line, basically reaching Tuscany, but uh, crossing, assuming that it crosses the Apennines, so the mountains in the center of Italy. So, I mean, most of the northern part would remain unaffected. Milan, nothing would happen to Milan, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) Nothing happens to Milan, (laughs) it remains. Unfortunately, uh, hell on earth remains. Uh, Well, I just want to say thank you for for taking so much time out of your day and, and for giving such a, comprehensive explanation really of a lot of Italian history from the end of World War II to now. So whenever you're free again, we'll we'll do a, a second part. I'm hoping that Geronimo or somebody else in the group will be able to join and then we can have a more in-depth discussion about all of the features of the Gladio operation. I especially yes. I want to talk about the abduction yes, I, of, of I will war. study
0: more of the reports. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Well yeah, thanks we so much do... Nicola. Because uh, now I have the exams until the 18th of March. So the week after, we can do something.
1: Perfect. All right. Well, thanks so much. And uh, have a good night and, and good luck with the exams. All right.
2: Thank you. Bye. 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 Good, Bye. Night. Bye. good night. Good night. <laughs> Bye.